This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is now a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode I interview authors about their latest works. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Today, I am interviewing Jeff Arch about attachments. Jeff grew up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, where he spent two of his high school years at a boarding school. He worked as a concert lighting designer and toured the country with national rock and reggae acts while teaching himself to write screenplays on the side. Years later, he sold the martial arts school he'd built and gave himself one year to write three screenplays. The second of those sold almost immediately, and Sleepless in Seattle became a surprise mega-hit worldwide. For his screenplay, Jeff was nominated for an Oscar, as well as for Writers Guild and BAFTA Awards, among others. Jeff is a father, stepfather, father-in-law, and grandfather. Attachments is Jeff's first novel. I loved Jeff's book, and I selected it as one of my Buzz Reads top five picks for June. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional book, book Nerds. nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy, happy reading. reading. Welcome, Jeff. How are you today? Doing fine. Thank you. Great. I'm really looking forward to talking with you about attachments. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm so happy that you read it. I'm so happy that it's fresh. To everybody who ever speaks to Cindy again, she read it yesterday. I don't know if you'll all get the same service, but it's great. I know. It always makes it easier if it can be that fresh for me because then I can recall every bit of the storyline. So, well, why don't we start out for those who haven't read it in the last day and you give me a little bit of a summary of the book. Uh, it's a boarding school story where the dean of a boarding school has a stroke and on his way into unconsciousness, he calls out the names of two former students who have to be found and brought back to the school. And there is a giant puzzle going on about what happened 18 years before and why the dean called for these two students. And the dean's wife and son, his son especially, is incredibly confused and hurt by all this. So it's not so much a mystery of a puzzle as why he called them, what happened 20 years ago, and what's going to happen when these, when it's actually three students, one of them is married to one of the other ones. So Two guys and a girl all were in love with each other back when they were students that there was a betrayal. One of the guys ran away. The other two got married. And they never dealt with what happened back when they were students. And that is intrinsically tied into what's going on in the present day part of the book with the dean and his son and why he called out for them. Well, and I don't think this is a spoiler, but one of them dealt with it himself, right? Like by writing the book? One of them writes a book by, he, he runs away, writes a book about what happened. The book becomes very popular. It only alienates his former best friend and his former girlfriend who are married. It alienates them even more. He wrote the book not to get published, but just for his own healing while he was taken in by Buddhist monks in Oregon. But he was convinced by a writing teacher to publish the book and he didn't want to because he didn't want to hurt these people anymore. He was just trying to get it out of his system, what had happened to him. 
the book became very popular. He ended up selling it. He ended up giving in and selling the book because uh, the monastery was going under and he wanted to help them out financially because they had saved his life. So he didn't even want to publish the book. It ended up hurting this couple even more. Although it wasn't a revenge book, it was just what happened. And it was really well told and sensitive and everything. It got really popular. It was going to be a movie. And suddenly the movie fell apart. This is 10 years in between when they were students and the present setting of the, of the story. Suddenly he disappears from his own movie and the movie falls apart and the runaway runs away again and is gone for another 10 years until he's called back by the teacher. So they, don't, they, don't, they not only didn't see him, they didn't know where he was. The one time he resurfaced, it was to write a book that pretty much nailed him to the wall. Although that wasn't the intention, that's what happened. And now, eight years after that, he's being, they have to see him again. So he almost made the estrangement worse, I felt like. He made the estrangement worse. You know, one thing in, in, in everything I write, I was looking back, and all the things I've written, I've only had one thing that had a, a villain in it, a bad guy. And, and that was a Disney movie, which had to have a bad guy. <laughs> but everything else is just people messing up their own lives. So I know that, you know, you read it and maybe, maybe you'll disagree, but my, the way these characters were, you know, everybody had the best of intentions. They were just confused, messed up, and they conflicted with other people's best intentions. So nobody was out trying to ruin anybody's life. But these three people got so tangled up that nothing was going to be right until they resolved it. And that's one of the reasons the teacher, the dean, called to have them back. Why it was important for him to have three students from 20 years ago resolve their problems is the puzzle of the book. I definitely did not feel that Goody was the bad guy and that they were the good people. It was more just that there was, like you said, this big mess and that step just kind of furthered the mess. But it didn't mean that one of them was better than the other or was more at fault. It was more just a mess. Well, I'm glad you saw that. And as I, I wondered if you had a rooting interest in this couple, like which do you, do you want, you know, it starts out, Pick and Laura are the, are the couple that ended up getting married. Pick and Goody were best friends. Goody and Laura were romantic relationship before Pick showed up. And so for the whole school year, Pick and Laura are falling in love while Goody is Laura's boyfriend. And Goody is completely unaware of it. They can't even speak about it because of the implications of it. And they're trying very hard to honor the relationship the way it is. And they're trying very hard to deny what's really going on. So what I hope you got through the course of the movie is that Pick and Laura really were meant for each other and they were falling in love. And nobody was trying to stop them. It was their own moral stance. It was their own morality. You know, there's a line that says, you know, you you don't make you don't make a move on your best friend's girl. You just don't. And Pick, who has a gangster father who's anything but honorable, has a superior sense, a supreme sense of honor. So he he's just not gonna do it. Then things happen and they end up in bed and Goody discovers them and he runs away. And they find each other later in life and they do get married and they do really love each other, but this specter over how this happened definitely makes Pick feel like he didn't really earn this marriage. And Laura really never gets over the guilt of how it happened. She loves Pick and she chose Pick, but she had, you know, a really special guy in her life who she broke his heart twice. And, you know, when you're, I don't know most people in their mid thirties, if you're still thinking back to some just nasty event that happened back in high school and can't let go of it. 
I've heard comments that said, look, just let go of it. But, you know, a lot of people just can't. A lot of people can't get over their regret about something they did that they would not have done today. I think that's exactly right. And I think if you're one of those people who can't get over the regret, it's easier to understand other people's regret. And if you're on the flip side of it, like you don't really have that thing back there, then sometimes it is a little harder to understand how someone can still be focused on something. But, you know, I think those events change you. And so it just really depends on what it was and how it happened. But I did feel like, as I was reading about Laura and Goody, that he liked her a whole lot more than she liked him. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not a great position to be in. Like it, when you're young, you think it is, you're like, oh, they're so great. They love me. And, you know, maybe I don't love them quite as much. But as you, as you get a little older, you're like, yeah, it's those unbalanced relationships on either side are not fun. Yeah. And, you know, and Goody had that sense. I think maybe all of us, maybe most of us, maybe even only some of us, you know, know somebody who's here when they're here, but you just kind of know they're meant for something else. And Goody was one of those people who's kind of owned by the world, not by a person. He had something beyond the campus and beyond, I guess, what we would call normal life. And you can kind of sense that in people. So they, they can be there for the world, but they can't sit at the dinner table. And Goody was very cerebral, very spiritual. He's, you know, he, he loses his father early in life and he's constantly searching for, for meaning. At a, at a pretty young age, most high school kids aren't as, as deep as Goody is. Like we used to call them, like we still call them, like old souls, old wise souls. So Goody was just kind of this giant open wound. And when he met Laura, she was an open wound. So kind of their wounds attracted to each other, but not their possibilities. And those are rougher relationships long term, I think. So when you go in when you're not really your whole self, and I also remember one of the teachers commenting about Goody, like he just can't sit still he's not focused or whatever it was that he just, he wasn't settled. And I mean, you can understand it based on his father's death and everything, but you know, you just kind of thought, I don't think this is the right time for him. No, it was. And I was a high school teacher and you could just tell, and we can all look back in high school and know the people that shined so bright in high school. And then there were people who were the lonely ones and the observers and high school was torture for them. And I, unfortunately, I got close to a lot of my students and I was able to tell some of them, look, this is just not your time. You got to hang on. You're, it's going to be college. It's going to be later. But what you think now, these three, four years, which is everything to you and they seem endless, but in perspective, that's a really tiny chunk of your life. And people that burn hot, really hot right now, 10 years from now, they might not be burning so hot. That might be just when you're reaching your peak. So, you know, Goody was probably meant to be an author. He was probably meant to be a writer. He was probably meant to be exactly what he turned out to be. He just didn't think he was gonna. It was gonna happen like that. And uh, you know, I've been in those situations I, where your love for somebody is overwhelming to them and is engulfing to them. And I think Goody sort of engulfed Laura after a while with how much he loved her, how much he needed her, and how much he elevated her. And I think, I hope I brought that out, that her opinion of herself wasn't anywhere close to his opinion of her. Well, I think that's what I was trying to say earlier, was that he was so focused on her, and you could tell that she felt sort of smothered, but also, like, maybe he didn't really know her, because he sort of put her on this pedestal versus understanding her real personality. How did you come up with the subject matter for this? I'm so curious. Well, I went to a school like that. And I, I'm going to blame my mother for this. She, she kept saying to me, 
when I, you know, let her know when I, <laughs> I'll use the term when I came out as a writer, she said to me, you ought to write about what happened to you at that school. And I kept saying, listen, nobody cares about what happened to me at that school. Nothing dramatic enough happened to fill a book. That's for sure. But and every time I wrote something, she'd read and she'd say, I really like this, but you ought to write about what happened at that school. And I finally did. And I, she did see a very early draft of this book before she passed. And she said, "This is I love this. This is wonderful. But you still ought to write about what happened to you at that school. So one thing that happened in the book that, that I guess started the whole thing was I had a girlfriend and I had a best friend and there was a mix up one night and nothing happened. But I remember thinking if something did happen, I would not have had the strength to stay at the school, you know, such a small environment and everybody knows what you're going through. And that was torture for me, but I also wouldn't have had the courage to run away. But I thought that the initial, you know, foundation of the story was, it was always going to be about a teacher and three kids and a betrayal. And one of them was going to run away. That's all I knew when I started this. And I, I went up to that school after 17 years of not being there and with no warning. And I looked up the teacher that I based Henry Griffin on. And he happened to be home and we had a long day together. And it was just such a wonderful conversation. And on the way back from that is where the story started to evolve in my head. A teacher, three kids, a betrayal, and one of them runs away. And that's all I knew. Have you shown the teacher who Henry's based on your book now? He has, he saw, yes, um, I haven't heard his reaction to this version, but I think about four or five years ago, I did that thing with Create Space, you know, so I had about, I don't know, 30 or 40 of those made just to see what it was like as a book. And he read that. And I actually, just by coincidence, one of his sons lived near where we were. And, and I, I got to have lunch with this guy. I think he was 80 at that point. I'm in my 60s. And if it's possible, he's an actually even better person than Henry Griffin was. I, I just oh, can't wow. make it over the integrity and how much I admire this guy. And I didn't really, because it was a group setting, I didn't really have a chance to say to him, what, what's it like to read this? Because you know it's about you. And maybe I was embarrassed to ask it or just the opportunity wasn't there. I, I just think he's so modest. I don't even think he would have been able to answer. He would have said something like, it's interesting or it's curious. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't think he would have divulged, you know, he would have told his wife everything, but he probably wouldn't have told me anything deep about what this was all like for him. I think he was really um, just so moved that he meant that much to somebody that would, would write a book about it. Well, I would certainly think so. You know, to have yourself show up in a book would be fantastic, as long as it's a nice portrayal. <laughs> so him showing up in this book is fantastic. Well, what about the format? I really like varied formats. So you you have alternating voices and you have two different time periods. You have excerpts from the novel. How did all of that come about? Well, the the alternating voices came from when I was in high school, one of the kids in school wrote a short story and won some award for it. and. I love the story and he used alternating voices. And so I'm 16 when this happens. And I just, I filed that away. I thought this is such a cool technique. If I ever get a chance to use it, I'm going to. And when the idea for this book came and started to write, you know, how are you going to approach this thing? How are you going to do it? That technique came back and I thought, ooh, 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 this is going to be a chance to do the alternating voices thing and see how it works. So everybody that got a chapter, they told their story about this story. 
I just kind of followed him about a step behind because I really didn't know what was going to happen. And which is kind of cool because if you didn't know what's going to happen as a reader, it's because I didn't know. And there was a lot, so much discovery. But I picked that technique because, you know, I think that technique picked me. It just happens that way. I've written so many things. And I know it sounds crazy. I'm in California, so I can talk this way. But the story tells you what it wants and how it wants to be told. You know, just like you have three kids and they all have to be brought up the same way on one sense, but they all have to be brought up differently according to who they are in another sense. So this story wanted to be a book. It did not want to be a movie. It wanted to be told in alternating voices. And just to get the exposition out and so that people can understand what was going on, sometimes they had to go in the past. The rest, the excerpts from the book, the NPR interview that was in it, those are all techniques that you just, that I just had in the toolkit after all these years of writing that uh, you just have to, I would have to say, how am I going to tell, how am I going to convey this information in a way that's entertaining and doesn't feel like I'm conveying information? So, okay, an excerpt from his book. Okay, an NPR interview. Okay, a flashback. And I, I was, I felt like I was on the run the whole time. Save me, come up with something that'll help me tell the story. And the characters did all the work. I, I sat there and guided them, but they they told me what they wanted. I followed them through it. It's a crazy, nothing's, you know, I've written a lot of things and definitely characters run away. They be, if they don't become real people, then you're doing you're doing your job wrong. If they don't get out of hand, you're doing your job wrong. And you, know, you sort of like the catcher in the rye, you sort of have to guide them and bring them back from the cliff. But that's all you do. And that's how I picked the technique. And, and I actually called the guy from high school and said, you remember that story you wrote? And he said, yeah, I do. And I said, well, I, I stole this technique for a book. And I sent him the book. And he said, I got the technique from William Faulkner. So <laughs> um, well, my question was, who did William Faulkner get it from? But yeah, it's just... I love that technique. And it's so it was great to get a chance to use it. So I used it. I love that technique too. And I think it's pretty common these days, but I think it's a great way to disseminate different information because each individual has their own perspective and their own information. And so when you tell it from multiple points of view, it's a lot easier to get that information out. Yeah. And, and also it, it, it's, I kind of did the same thing in Sleepless. Whenever I would get in trouble in a scene, I would just cut to the other side of the country so here, you know, okay, I got to jump to another character because I don't know where to take this chapter after here. So it was kind of cool to always have somebody new to go to every five or six pages. Well, Jeff, you just led me into my next question because I was just getting ready to ask about the difference in writing a screenplay and writing this book. But first, let's talk about Sleepless in Seattle because I'm dying to hear all about it. And then we can talk about the difference in the screenplay and the book. Absolutely. So why don't you just tell me a little bit about coming up with the idea, how the process worked, how you sold it, all of it. Well, I, boy, at the time, that was my, I think, fifth movie script that I wrote. My very first movie script uh, did get optioned, and I got a nice piece of money for a 23-year-old, but it didn't get made. And so that then began a long period. So I had to find other things to do. So I was a teacher. I, I learned Taekwondo, so I was running a martial arts school. And just that little voice just kept coming back saying, you're doing a great job, but this isn't what was meant for you. And that's kind of a, a rough thing to hear. First of all, to admit to yourself that you're meant for something bigger. Well, who, who gave you that? But I got back to writing. And the first thing I wrote was a buddy comedy that every a lot of people loved, but it had a Cold War theme. And I wrote it when the Cold War ended. 
So that didn't get made, but a lot of people were interested. And my agent said, uh, I'm going to set up some meetings for you. And I said, I don't have a new story to tell. He said, what do you like? And I said, well, I like love stories. He said, if you can come up with a love story, I can sell it. So that night I said, okay, I'm going to think of a love story. So that's the long answer. The short answer, probably even longer, (laughs) is that in a love story, you have to know before you even start it, what's going to keep these two people apart. And because really in a modern, the modern day, nothing keeps two people apart who want to be together. They will find a way. And in most of the romantic comedies of the time, and sadly now, what keeps the two people apart is a premise and it's false. And, you know, you just have to try to get through this whole second act of 60 pages where these two people are bickering and arguing and all that stuff until they fall, until they get it. I don't really think people bicker their way into love. People don't argue their way into love. And it just felt like, you, you know, the whole story is holding up a premise. But still, that's how you have to tell a love story. And I couldn't think of how to do it and, and all the mute, mute, cute things. So at one point, I just said, the hell with it. They're not even going to meet. And a light went on. And I thought, wow, they're not going to meet. Then the next light was, what if they don't meet at all? You tell a love story where the two people are completely unaware of each other and the audience knows they're perfect. So, and what happens if they meet on top of the Empire State Building on Valentine's Day at sunset? And when I had that, very soon after that came this title in my head, Sleepless in Seattle, because I knew this guy was going to call a radio station and she was going to hear him. So as soon as I heard Sleepless in Seattle in my head, I mean, I just became one giant goosebump. And I had this experience. It, it all came down in one night. Not the writing of it, but the bare, bones <laughs> of, the bare bones of the story. You know, there's basically six things you have to know, I have to know before I begin a story. And I filled in those things so I knew where the signposts were. And I don't want to say it wrote itself, but I wrote that one really quickly. A love story where the people don't meet. I thought you know, if I can pull this off, I've done something nobody's ever done. And I sure can't do a conventional romantic comedy because I didn't believe in them. There, there just weren't very many good ones out there at the time. Pretty Woman and When Harry Met Sally kept the genre alive long enough for me to get there. And then, you know, thank God mine worked. And then a, a whole bunch of romantic comedies came out. And it, it's just really hard to do them right. It is really hard to do. I mean, there just aren't very many good ones, even now, I don't think. So that's why I just think Sleepless in Seattle is such a classic and so fabulous. And I mean, did you ever have any idea that that was going to be? I mean, you, could you imagine what it turned into? You know, Cindy, this has never happened, never happened before, and it's never happened since. But the night I got that idea, I could just see the whole thing. I, I even knew that 30 years later, they're going to be still making plays on words with the title. And I just knew if I get this right, it's going to be a monster that the right people are going to come along. And also the wrong people are going to come along, but it's strong enough to shake them off. And that's exactly what happened. The right people came. You can't get more right than Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks. Not at all. I mean, just to think that that's who's starring in your movie, I I just can't even imagine. I'm sure you were just over the moon. I was over the moon. I mean, I wrote it with Meg in mind. The first draft I wrote with Meg and Kevin Costner in mind. And so, you know, you're not going to get that performance. Tom Hanks made it a different movie than Kevin Costner would have made it. Mine was more, it wasn't as out and out funny. There was a lot of humor in it and it was more gentle humor. And, you know, it was more wistful. 
And uh, when Nora Ephron came on, and one of the reasons she came on is they wanted her to put some of that biting kind of comedy that she does. And she's the one who brought in Rob Reiner and Rita Wilson. And, and the, the two biggest laugh scenes in it are the Rob Reiner scene and the Rita Wilson scene. It's kind of an unspecified, an, un, an unwritten rule that in a, in a love story, in a romantic comedy, you don't make the two people, the couple, the funniest ones. It's always people around them that are funny funnier than they are. So I, I, I don't know. I just knew, Cindy, if I get this right, it's going to be a monster. And I, I was right because the right people did come along and they got it through and the wrong people came along and it shook them off. And it was just one of those things that was meant to be. And I had that sense the whole time. This really isn't about you. There's something that's meant to happen and you were just here first. It's your job to get it to the next thing. And that's kind of the way I saw it. I'm preparing this document that's going to go to the next step and the next step and the next step. And as a screenplay writer, you kind of have to know uh, there's a good chance you're not going to be the writer of record when the thing gets made just by the way the business is. So I wanted to make sure I was in it the whole time, even if I wasn't there. And so I put some booby traps in it structurally that, you know, you, you can't move this. If you, it's like a supporting wall in a house. If you move this, it's going to fall down. So the vibe that's in it, the personality that's in it, the quality that's in it, uh, the story, the characters, all, all, all that's mine. Um, I like to say if you were laughing, if you're remembering all the stuff you laughed at, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give that to Nora. But the stuff that made you think and reflect, that hits you in a deeper emotional level, uh, I'm going to take credit for that. that. That was me. That was in the original. There was, I, there was just at that time in my life so much love and so much desperation at the same time. I'd given myself a year to write three screenplays and Sleepless was the second and the clock was ticking. So it just came out. I wanted to send a Valentine to the planet and, and I got to. You did to the entire planet. We watched it a couple of years ago with my kids and they all just loved it too. And I, I just think there aren't a lot of those movies that are really going to stand up that well, you know, and they, but they all three thought it was fabulous. It was probably four or five years ago, but yeah, they wow. just really liked it too. Well, it's, it's been good to me. I mean, it's just in our family, it was like the third kid in the family. There was my, my daughter, then my son and then sleepless. So when they were kids, it was like it had a seat at the dinner table because it grew up as they were growing up. Oh, oh, I finished Sleepless. Oh, I'm on page this. I finished. Oh my gosh, we got to, someone's buying it. Oh my gosh, I'm going out to, it was another child of the family. And so they grew up with this title and this, um, whatever, this presence in their lives. And I don't think my daughter saw it until she was 19. Don't know how old my son was. They, I mean, they both saw it at the time, but they didn't know what the hell was going on. And my son has seen it a couple of times and most recently with his fiance. So uh, she loved it. <laughs> You know? Well, yeah, how can you not? I don't think I've ever met anybody that doesn't love it. And it's really cool that you kept the name the whole time because that also doesn't happen. There was a lot of, you know, if, if I thank Nora for anything, if I could pick one thing, it would be she told the studio, don't you dare change the name because there was a lot, there was a lot of pressure about that. In fact, before Blockbuster Video, this is really going back and our neighborhood there was a there was a video store called Errol's and they put out like a printed newsletter of all the stuff that's coming out and they said boy we got word of one of the stupidest titles we've ever heard um, <laughs> there were two of them one of them was sleepless in seattle and the other one was buffy the vampire slayer and and they guessed wrong on both <laughs> they guessed wrong on both they guessed just horrendously wrong wonderfully wrong on both 
So I hope you held on to that. You know, I didn't, but I, I, the story's there. The, the documentation isn't there, but the story's there. And, you know, a lot of people would just go, here's the thing. Men had a, men had a problem with it because what is this? But women didn't. And the reason, the way I came up with the title so easily is that as a kid, I read Dear Abby every day. And they were always saying, you know, home, hopeless in Houston, you know, and so right. I knew that pattern. And when I knew the guy was going to be talking to a psychologist, it just sort of, and that she was, you know, having a radio show and you have to have a hook, you have to have some sizzle. She called him sleepless in Seattle. So I, that's why I think a lot of women, women didn't have a problem with the title because it's sort of, most guys don't read Dear Abby. That's true, I guess. I hadn't even thought about it. And that's funny. I guess it's so easy in hindsight to say, well, how could anybody have a problem with it? But it was so different at the time. The title was different. The premise was different. I don't know why. I don't, really don't know why the studio made it. Uh, that's not the kind of thing you do. It, at the time, it cost $26 million to shoot the movie, which we weren't in the era yet of everything costing $100 bucks. But but it wasn't this big, giant movie they were doing. And I don't. I think if they took it more seriously, they would have ruined it. So it's good that they kind of didn't know what was going on. And we had a test screening in Pasadena like six months before it opened. And that's when the studio saw what they had. And then they got behind it in a really big way. And they commissioned that song that Celine Dion and David Foster did. And, you know, they just got behind it. They said, holy cow, we have one of those sleeper hits. So let's make it a sleeper hit. And nobody saw it. You know, and it's so funny to me. And it makes sense because how else do you do it? But it's funny that all the way until like all the filming's done, you've got this test audience or maybe portion of the filming's done. I don't know when they do the test audience, but that that's when everybody loves it. And you're so far along in the process. It's, you know what, it's, um, it, it is an industry. There is a production line. That is a moment where you get a real live audience in front. There is no more shooting to do. Although in a lot of cases, after a test screening, there's reshooting. Right. We didn't yeah. reshoot. There, there were some things that we cut. Thank God that we're in that test screening that we cut. And again, another case of it was wrong and the movie shook it off. And, you know, sometimes I'll hear like the ending will be redone or things like that. So you're right. They've done the main part of the filming, but there could be some changes based on the feedback. But it's just sort of hard to imagine you've got these two, well, four huge stars and, you know, this whole movie filmed and everything going and you don't really know how people are going to respond until you get it in front of a test audience. But it's just like books, I guess. I mean, it's the nature of those industries. Now, the funny thing, thank God the test audience you know, loved it uh, for obvious reasons, but also there's a pretty famous story about the Marx Brothers tested one of their movies, I think in Long Beach. Now we're going back to the 1930s, but they tested this movie in Long Beach and everybody hated it. And the next night they tested it at a different theater in Long Beach and everybody loved it. The same thing. So what do you do then? So I'm so glad they didn't have with ours a second test screening because if everybody hated it, there wouldn't be a movie. But they, they loved it. The, the test cards were just phenomenal. And there were even more of a, an indicator. There were some hardcore movie people in that theater kind of sitting in the rows behind us. And I thought, if, if I get them, you know, we have it. And they were in tears. Now I'm going to have to watch this movie again <laughs> soon. <laughs> With all this talk, I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to be back no, to no it. No complaint from me. Yeah, exactly. Well, before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you have read recently that you really liked. I, you know, Frederick Bachman is Swedish. He wrote Anxious People. Have you read Anxious People? 
I have. I've read almost all of his books. How good is that book? I did like it. My favorite of his is still A Man Called Uwe, but I did like Anxious People. People keep telling me to read that, and I keep saying, well, I love the movie, and they said, forget the movie, you got to read the book. So I will. I'm, I'm just such a fan of his. And I obviously, I mean, he didn't write it in English, but I, it, it's so hard to believe that wasn't written in English. His, his grasp of human nature, and he loves how crazy we are. Definitely. He also has a novella about dealing with people with dementia and Alzheimer's, and you know, it's obviously much shorter because it's a novella and it's fiction, but it's fabulous. And if you have anyone in your life who is dealing with memory issues, I just felt it was so on point. Like it made me sad, obviously, but it also gave me a better sense for maybe what was going on in you know the mind of the person that's dealing with the disease. And I just thought that was really amazing. You know who else does that really well? It's a few years ago, The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry. You know that? Oh, I love that book. Yeah. You're in his head that, that for when he takes that walk, there's something about a ditch or something. And like, I go, wow, you just put me in the head of somebody of a senior who has, you know, oncoming Alzheimer's. And wow, was that amazing. I tried to get the film rights for that, but they were taken. So far, there's no movie. I'm reading a lot of Christina Baker Klein right now because I got to know her a little bit and we're doing an interview. So I'm, some of it's for just so I'm familiar with her work, because historical fiction, not really my genre, but I'm so impressed with how she got me so hooked on the first page of every book I read of hers. And not one of them was a book that if I saw it on the shelf, I'd take it home. The Exiles has been one of the number one recommended books by authors, a lot more around the time it was coming out, but still people bring it up regularly. I haven't read it, but I loved The Orphan Train. The Exiles, is, I, just, I finished that and I just read A Piece of the World, finished it last night. And Orphan Train was the first of hers that I read. It's not my subject matter. And I would look at the tight, I would look at the cover in the back and I'd say, yeah, this is great, but make me wonder what else am I missing out there? A Piece of the World is the one that's based on the Andrew Wyeth painting. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. That was very depressing, but I, I love his art, so I did read the, the book, but I thought it was very, very sad. It, yeah, it was. Um, it just had me, in, it had me in this haze. I don't know the word for it. You know, you get in this zone of, of you're in the world of the book, and yeah, it, it, it was sad. It was sad uh, that especially there are those moments where, you know, your whole life can change on one decision. And the moment, the moment where she was not allowed to go to school, right, broke my heart and the opportunities she had and just broke my heart and how stubborn she got. And speaking of that, the Eleanor Oliphant book. Oh, I love that book. uh, What a woman. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I saw Gail Honeyman when she was on the book tour for that. And she was just fantastic. I love that book. I just really think it is such a fabulous story. How far into it were you? This is going to be a spoiler, everybody. But how far into it when you realized her mother wasn't really there? Way longer than I normally am. I'm usually pretty good about predicting things and being able to figure out what's going on. And I was very surprised by that. How about you? It, it caught me completely unprepared. Um, ah. I, I don't. I try not to predict anything. I, if I read a, you know, if I read a mystery or detective story, I don't try and get ahead of the detective. Like. So that really caught me. Let's get back to attachments for a second, because without doing the spoiler, you know what big revelation I'm talking about. How far ahead of that did you guess? I'm trying to think. I knew you were going to ask that, and now I'm going to have to, I think a little bit ahead. I wasn't thinking about it. And so you know how you're talking about with mysteries? 
I don't even try to figure it out, but like, it's just because I've read so many of them, I can figure it out, like without even focusing on it, it just happens so often, which kind of then I get frustrated by. But I think when I'm not necessarily expecting it, then my brain isn't trying to unpuzzle or puzzle out the issue the whole time. So I think a little bit ahead, but not as as far ahead as I sometimes do. Okay. And then, you know, I knew with attachments when I did that reveal that there was plenty of book left. So it wasn't so much about, it wasn't about the reveal. It's about how do people handle the reveal. Right. There's a little trick from soap operas. You know, there'd be one piece of news on a soap opera and the whole week of that show, I got a little bit into this when I had a girlfriend in college. She watched a lot of soap operas. So that was my, you know, one person gets the news, but the rest of the week is every other character getting that news. And and uh, that's how they just would extend this thing over years and years and years. So it wasn't so much about the revelation. Uh, maybe there are two revelations in that book, maybe three. They're, they're not so much about that, but how are people going to handle it? Right. I didn't want the book to be over as soon as you found out. Right. No. And I don't, I don't really like those endings where it's like, here we are. And that's what it is. No, I think that the piecing it out is the, the interesting part. And I'm a mystery writer, so I had no idea what the hell I was doing. <laughs> well, that's the hard part for me. And it's happened a couple of times lately with some mysteries. Like I just get started on them and I just immediately know. And then it, a lot of times it ruins the book. I mean, it depends on the book, but I know in particular it ruined one book for me recently and I just should have just stopped reading right then, but that happens and it's all good. <laughs> you know, the author Richard Moraes, he wrote Budaland, Brooklyn, and I'm missing the other title, but it was a movie with Meryl Streep um, that took place. An Indian guy opened a restaurant in France right across from hers. And I forget. The oh, show. yes, yes. I know what you're talking about. Um, that movie was really cute. Journey, I think it was called. Yes. And so I got to know him a little bit at a conference and he said he was writing a murder mystery. And I said, well, how do you know, you know, when they, ki-? he said, I don't know when the killer, he, he didn't know who the killer was himself. So this guy wrote this whole mystery without knowing who the killer was. And I haven't read, I don't think it's out yet, but that's kind of the coolest way. I mean, I kind of did that. If you know so much ahead of time, you sort of write with a different flavor. Then right. if you, you, you kind of know where you're going, but you don't know how you're going to get there. You don't know what's going to happen on the way. You just have a sense of your destination. So I know there are people that have to put index cards and outline everything before they even write a word. And I know people who have nothing and they just start and they want the whole thing to be discovery. I was a little bit in the middle. I want to know some things and I want, I want them to do it because, you know, when, when you get in there, you're tapping in, you know, you're, you're tapping into the river of every story. And, you know, those characters had a life. They had their own stuff that they wanted to do. They made decisions I don't necessarily wouldn't have made. A lot of the things that happened to Goody, a lot of the events that happened to Goody, you know, did happen to me, but I didn't respond to them the way Goody did. So I gave him some, you know, my dad did die in between my sophomore and junior year of high school. I did get caught in my girlfriend's closet in her dormitory room. <laughs> and that's why I didn't finish at that school. And, and you know, and, and I did have, there was a, a kid whose father had a restaurant and may or may not have been, but he absolutely you know, the, the, the Scorsese film, The Irishman, about that period of the mob in Pennsylvania, uh, that was him. There were things that happened. There were things that almost happened. There were things that could have happened. And sorry to my mom, but I went the more dramatic way than just like, okay, me in boarding school. It just, <laughs> I don't want to live a life of novel. You know, I don't want to be a character in a novel because too much stuff happens to them. Exactly. Well, and it worked out perfectly. I mean, I just loved it. I think Attachments is a fabulous novel. I think everyone else is going to love it. And 
I really appreciate your time, Jeff. Thank you so much for joining me on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. Take care of those kids and especially number three. I sure will. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. Jeff's book can be purchased at the Conversations from a Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardknowpodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard note.